Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. We've never discussed sandwich toasters. Like a Breville? Yeah. I don't believe we have, have we? Do you like it? I mean, I mean we've, we've, we've covered a lot of sandwich-based content over the years. I tell you what I suppose I was thinking about in this, and I mean, you're going to say the same about toasters, so okay, fine. I remember growing up as a child, it was like a big thing. We got a sandwich toaster and... I used to like making toasted cheese sandwiches. I got one for my son, I think, a couple of years ago. They've not really changed very much, have they? Oh, you mean it's a, it's a bit of technology that they perfected and that it can't be improved upon? Well, that's what I was sort of thinking. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I find the indentations that a sandwich toaster leaves, mm. uh, I, I feel that design could be updated a little. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. And the other question I have is, if you're not wanting cheese in it, if you're a vegan, I've been sort of researching this recently. What's your chosen thing to have in the sandwich toaster? This is a good question. Um, maybe a spicy chili non carne. What in the sandwich? Yeah. Mm. So maybe you've got some leftovers. Do you use sandwich toasters, or are you just not? In- I think we had one in the eighties. Used it once, and then never it never came out of the cupboard again. Oh, that's so interesting, right? I see. Do you feel like the panini rather usurped the Breville sandwich toaster? I, I, I'm not particularly a panini person, actually. What's the difference though? Well, a panini is a type of bread, isn't it? Is it inherent to a panini that it is a toasted filled sandwich? Maybe. I mean, look, fundamentally, I am a big fan of a toasty. I'll tell you what I don't enjoy is the, the leakage. What kind of, which, what, which aspect? If the cheese or the butter or whatever is leaking out onto the breville and then you have to scrape it off. Mm, they're quite non-stick these days. I don't, I think that's less of an issue than you might find. It's also a good thing that children can make without too much difficulty. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I'm making the case. You are making the case. Yes. And actually, I've been, I, 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 Paneer? I'm, I'm going. I'm going all the culinary options here. I made a paneer the other day. You made your own paneer. Well, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. I made a, a dish with paneer in it. Oh, sorry, because I, I have made my own paneer before. Now it's it's quite easily done with a bit of cheesecloth. Can I just say that it's like one-upmanship. I mean, it makes your failure to use my vegan cheese-making set Christmas present all the more remarkable. We've been through this before. The trouble is, I think there are so many great vegan alternatives available these days which i enjoy and and try to prioritize in my experience and i'm very happy to be proven wrong cheese isn't one of them so if the professionals aren't doing a good job of that what chance do i have with something that you've picked up on the shelves of of a gift shop but paneer is not easy wouldn't have thought to make your own paneer oh yeah it wasn't good what i made it was terrible but i'm just saying that i made it so 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 what 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 did you cook with paneer we're getting sidetracked. It was like paneer and peas and beans and so on. What's a paneer? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of in that, it's in that vicinity. It, it didn't get the 
it's edible thing, but nor did it get the enthusiasm that the last week's things had got. It got the last time I had this with my friend Kate, it had a nice sauce on it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit dry. Is it? Is basically the problem. I, th- I think you can chalk it up as a draw. Well, it, I think because it was the first attempt at the paneer, I think I get a bit of a pass. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yeah. This week, we're talking about modern diplomacy. Now, like a lot of people, I had this impression of what a diplomat does all day. I'm seeing a lot of dinners, cocktails, really a lot of ambassadors' receptions. And we're going to see how true that is in the modern world, I suspect, not at all. We're going to be talking to three people who have first-hand experience of working at the vanguard of diplomacy. And it's actually a really cheerful topic to explore. Uh, We're going to be talking about resolving conflict, seeing the best in other people, finding ways to cooperate with other nations to solve some of the world's biggest challenges. So first, we're going to be speaking to friend of the pod, always a joy to have her on. She is one of the world's top climate negotiators, Christiana Figueres. Then we will be joined by Gabrielle Rifkind, who is a specialist in conflict resolution. And then finally, Catherine Ashton, who was the EU's top diplomat and the first woman, the first and last, in fact, Brit to hold that position. Do you think you would have made a good diplomat? I think we're both a bit prone to the faux pas. No, I think I've got diplomatic. I, I, I think it does require an engagement with people, which you might find quite sort of... Well, I, th- I think my, my faux pas would be blurting something inappropriate out and, and yours would be knocking over the Ferraro Rocher at the ambassador's reception. That's true. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I went on a school trip this week. Mm. It took me back. I, I spent a lot of the time up at the front of the group talking to the teacher, trying to curry her favour, which is what I would do on school trips as a kid. Did you do that on school trips? Oh, yeah, I always wanted to sit with the teacher. Wow. I'm quite surprised that you'd want to sit with the teacher. That's interesting. Oh, always. I was obsessed with the teachers. Mm. I used to ring them in the school holidays. I used to see how they were getting on. What did they say? I think they were surprised. How old were you when you did that? Eight, nine, ten, I don't know. That's hilarious. I know, it's really weird, isn't it? So where did you go? Where did the school trip go? We went to the local park bird watching. But something I was really good at was the road crossings. Standing like, like a, a lollipop man with an invisible lollipop holding back the traffic. I think that was really what I was born to do. God, that's impressive. Thank you. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, as previewed, I think, last week, we have exceeded our previous Wordle record. Yes, we've been counting down. And we're now at 75 and counting. And, and 72 was the magic number that you had 70, to hear, Yeah, 72 was, would be the record, yeah. So there you go. How did the Miliband family celebrate? Uh, not sure, but we, we sort Pun- of... Punching the air, hugging we, each other. Yeah, exactly. High fives. We, we, 100 is now in our sights. Wow. I look forward to the next 25 weeks of countdowns. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by my very good friend and friend of the podcast, Christiana Figueres, who is co-founder of Global Optimism and former executive secretary of the UNFCCC. And she presents her own excellent podcast, Outrage and Optimism with Tom Rivett Karnak. Christiana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back, Ed. I guess it means I didn't totally botch it the last time you invited me. Not in the least. It was a triumph. <laughs> Do you remember what happened the last time you were on, Christiana? Oh, no. What happened? What happened was, as we were talking, confirmation came through. I think that Biden had won the election and you had a very big reaction for us. <laughs> Good moment to be on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. You, you won the election for Biden. So just talk to us briefly, because just by way of introduction, we're talking about diplomacy here, Christiana, and some of our listeners may not know this. Your career previous to what you're doing now and the work at the UNFCCC was as a diplomat. Is that right? Yes, yes and no. My profession is actually anthropology. I had, however, worked as a diplomat at the Costa Rican embassy in the in Germany when Bonn was still the capital. So I did have some diplomatic experience, but those who know me know that I am for sure not diplomatic. What do you mean by that, though? If you think about the qualities that you typically find in a diplomat, how do you fall short? Well, 
well, I think very guarded language, never stick your neck out, you know, not exactly where I feel comfortable. <laughs> and, and yet the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement has been called one of the most remarkable achievements in the history of diplomacy. Talk to us about your diplomatic triumph. Well, first of all, I would say it was a success of thousands of people, Ed, as you well know, and you were one of them, thousands of people working for so many years to recover from what I call the United Nations' most successful failure, which was in Copenhagen in 2009. And then we set ourselves the task of completely reversing that and being able to get to a universal agreement on decarbonizing the economy. I think about the Paris Agreement as being a very, very rich tapestry with threads of many different cultures, of many different textures that came together from each of them from their own particular source, but then over time were woven into a tapestry that holds to this day. And when you talk about it being something that took years, talk to us a little bit about how you strategize something like that, because it's it's almost 200 parties. The strategy was to listen uh, very, very carefully and begin to map out the interests and the needs of all of these 196 governments. And sometimes each government didn't have consistent uh, wishes, interests, and needs, but they were internally inconsistent. We decided long before 2015 that contrary to all other climate agreements that had been reached there before, that we would aspire for universality, which means that every single country had to be on board. Can I just ask about unanimity? How, how is that not coming up with the most perfect version of something and then watering it down until everybody's on board with it? It is. It, that is one of the consequences that could happen. How do you avoid that then? Well, a lot of preparation, <laughs> a lot of preparation to really understand where the red lines are. Sometimes red lines appear in the last minute and you cannot really understand where real red lines are unless you've done the homework over a period of time, unless you've had the the calm and the dedication to sit down and really listen and understand where everyone is. I guess the interesting thing about the climate negotiations, thinking about it, is normally when we talk about diplomacy, we think of two sides or a number of sides who are at loggerheads. But I suppose the the, the difference with the climate negotiations is you're not just trying to satisfy the different parties. You've got this scientific imperative, which in a way, you know, you can't go for a lowest common denominator approach because you're then going to end up, you know, totally busting through any chance of one and a half degrees and so on. So so in some sense, it's a harder negotiation. But I guess, and this is, I suppose, my experience of these negotiations is you at least have a constraint, which is something you can present to people and say, well, it's all very well wanting to water down all your targets, but this is what the science says. Yeah, interesting. I don't see it as a constraint, but rather as an aspiration or an ambition. And the way that I bring those two sides together, Ed, is I think about the fact that the secretariat as a whole, but but certainly the executive secretary and the COP president, by the way, who I put into the same basket, have to be completely neutral to positions. So I, coming from a very ambitious and responsible, environmentally responsible country, I could not go to the secretariat, lead those negotiations from my country's perspective. I had to set that aside and be completely open and neutral to every single position that was represented by 196 countries, plus all of the other stakeholders that we surrounded this negotiation with. But while you have to be completely neutral to all political positions, you cannot be indifferent to outcome. And that's the balance. And if you think about the qualities you had to bring to the job you did, 
What was the most challenging thing about those negotiations? Was it understanding and being able to listen, as you said, and understand people's constraints? Yes, that for sure. Listening and understanding for sure. Also the balance between patience and impatience. Patience because we know that these processes require time to mature. But impatience also has to be there because scientists have been and continue to scream from the rooftops and tell us we're totally far behind where we ought to be. So that balance between patience for the process and impatience about the action, that has to be there too. And what do you think would most often move people's positions in a negotiation? Well, it's definitely true that everyone has to see some benefit, right? A good negotiation leads to an outcome where no one is 100% thrilled, but also where no one feels that they don't have anything. Everyone has to feel like they won something. Not everything that they wanted, but they won something. But when you ask me about what actually moves people, you know, Jeff, I think it is the capacity that we all have to touch our inner humanity. It's about recognizing that everyone who is there is a human being and that we all have that in common and that this is a common cause for everyone um, on the planet. And touching that humanity is key, I think, to getting out of stuck points. Your podcast is called Outrage and Optimism, as I said at the outset. Give us something to be optimistic about, Christiana. You're great at the optimism. You're great at the outrage, but you're also great at the optimism. I'm very optimistic about several things, Ed. I'm very optimistic about the fact that on the energy sector, certainly with respect to renewables, with respect to electrification of light transport and soon heavier transport, we have gone beyond the linear progress to now an S-curve that we're following, which takes us into exponential change, which is exactly where we need to be because we've run out of time. We can no longer afford linear progress. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also excited about the fact that we're on exponential progress with respect to public opinion, public expectation, and public pressure to get to the change. So all of that is very good news. I continue to be very concerned about the piece that has to do with nature. Nature laughs at us when, you know, in our infinite wisdom, we have a convention on biodiversity and a convention on climate change. As though those two things were separable, nature never separated that. It's only, you know, us little humans that did that. So that has led to uh, actually the fact that everything to do with nature and biodiversity is not as advanced as it ought to be. And that I'm very concerned about. And let me ask you this, for people who look at the COP process and, you know, maybe they see the Paris Agreement, but then they think about other COPs and think it, you know, has it really achieved very much and so on. What would you say to them about about sort of climate diplomacy and reasons to be optimistic and the kind of validity of that COP process? Well, here is where I'm not diplomatic, okay? I'm going to stick my neck out. <laughs> so my my sense is that with respect to multilateral diplomacy, which is what these conventions are, where all countries take place, with respect to multilateral diplomacy, I do think that the big deliverable was delivered in 2015. There are still some smaller pieces that still need multilateral attention. So I do not think that it is justifiable to continue to have these annual COPs that turn into these huge circuses that are focused on 196 countries getting to some agreement. The agreement stands. It's there. Uh, it puts forward a route for decarbonizing the global economy by 2050 at the latest. And now it's very much about a bringing the multilateral legal agreement down into domestic legislation. And secondly, we should actually be looking at the convergence or the the coming together of those domestic policies with private sector and with finance, because that's where most of the transformation can now occur. I mean, presumably, though, the point to make the case for the COPs that this annual gathering forces countries 
to look at the progress against what the Paris Agreement demanded and say, how far short are we and what, what are we going to do about it? Yes. It remains quite an important forcing mechanism, doesn't it? Yes. And this year, particularly, because this is the year of, sorry to use lingo now, but uh, this is the year of the global stock take, which is defined and determined by the Paris Agreement. And it is the year in which countries come together to do exactly as you said, and to see where their efforts are and what is the delta between efforts and uh, what science says is necessary and what is already embedded in the Paris Agreement. We already know, even before the global stock take takes place in November, that we're far behind. So it's not like we're going to get big news, fresh news. We already know that we're far behind. So to me, then, it's the so what question. That's the important piece. So what? So now what do we do? And that's where I then derive into what is necessary is further and deeper national policies, such as those that have been adopted in the United States, by the way. Really impressive. And that's the kind of thing that we ought to see. Well, the undiplomatic diplomat, but you're an absolutely brilliant influence on this whole debate. Uh, Christiana Figueras, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Ed. Thanks very much for having me. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Well, to continue the conversation, we are delighted to have with us specialist in conflict resolution and director of the Oxford Process, Gabrielle Rifkin. Hello. Hello to you. It's great to have your number because if Ed and I ever get into one of our little conflicts, <laughs> maybe about him not inviting me somewhere. Now you know where to go, I'll be Jeff. texting you and asking you how we get past it. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, we can bear <laughs> this one in mind. <laughs> so the Oxford process then, what is that organisation and what, and what does it involve? So we work directly behind the scenes to ripen the conditions for peacemaking in issues of war and peace. Our strapline is managing radical disagreement because, as we all know, when conflict becomes very extreme, people's positions harden and nobody wants to think about compromise, even mediation. And what you've got is often very different, more extreme points of view. And so the challenge is, is there a way people can find their mutual self-interest in which parties can learn to live 
with some of the compromises that are required. So I think often we think uh, as liberals, we'll convince people to be like us. You know, we've got the good values and they'll join us. But actually, that's not what happens. People have different histories, different backgrounds, different reasons for taking what we see as very extreme positions. And so what we say is the key is you have to understand all different positions, whether you, you don't have to like what people say, agree with what people what you say, but you have to get involved in the process of understanding how people are thinking. Are there more kind of human spaces in which we can think about how to actually end war? And your, your background is as a psychoanalyst. I'm interested to know the principles that underpinned that work. Are they the same? Or actually, when you're talking about disputes at the level that you're describing, does it actually become different? Well, I think they're the same and different. I'm definitely guided by having had 30 years in the consulting room. And, you know, there are some key principles. You have to get into the mind of the other. You have to get into the mind of all the parties. You have to start where people are at, not where you want them to be. And particularly, you know, if you think about uh, marital disputes, when people become very extreme and they basically want retribution, they don't want to find compromise. And people also become extremely emotional. And when people become emotional, they're not actually thinking about interests. They And they can make decisions that are actually worse them and their country. Let me ask you, Gabrielle, Jeff raised the fact that you're a psychoanalyst by background. What drew you into this work? Ah, that's a good question. Well, I actually, I was invited um, at the height of the Second Intifada in Israel to go and train 40 group analysts to work with trauma. And I think I went 30 times over a period of two and a half years. And then it seemed to me that the whole political process was traumatized on both sides. And it was the human relationships that had gone so wrong, both because of both sides' history of trauma. There were times, possibly, when there was a deal to be done. But what had happened to people made it very hard for people's states of mind to be ripe enough for, for that to happen. Are you talking about the, I guess, the psychological makeup of the people in the negotiations and, and their own feelings? Or are you talking about the weight that they carry on behalf of the people that they represent and how, how history will view it? I think both. And I think it's well put, Jeff, that I know that in the negotiations Palestine-Israel, sometimes people themselves had been literally involved in the war. And then there's all the historic baggage. But it, it's very hard to hold on to what would be best for both sides and how in the end do people learn to live together after all the horrors of war. And something you say is that you always try and find the human face of conflict. What do you mean by that and how does it help? I believe, and not everybody would agree with me, <laughs> that people even who do the most terrible things, they do have a human face somewhere. And you get into the aggression of war, the rhetoric, the fear. And when you don't have contact or just formal contacts, almost you've got kind of megaphone diplomacy going on. You know, perhaps people want to exit the war, but they, they have to give the different public rhetoric because you can never say that. It's just seen to be weakness. And so what you're trying to do is engage in a process in which people begin to think what is in their best interest. So it, it is the human face. It's the human face in which you put together the geopolitics and the human relationships. You put together the realities of power. You can't deny that. But you also have to think about why people behave in certain ways. Could you perhaps give us an insight on some of the past work you've done and how that has facilitated conflict resolution? Well, we did quite a lot of ripening on the Iranian nuclear issue. And in fact, there we talked to all the parties. We talked to senior people in the Iranian government, the US government, the Russian government. And in fact, what that was was more kind of preparation before the more official mediations happened. Because after some of the work we did, then they, I think the talks then moved to a man and then they became the more official process. So we're much earlier, much more preparatory, much more kind of warming up 
around when people's states of mind have hardened. It will never be my job to decide the outcome of a deal. Talk to us a bit more, Gabrielle, about this issue of conflict prevention, because it's much easier than conflict resolution once a conflict has begun. It's such an important question. Our belief is, absolutely passionately, that the more you think preventatively and the more you work quietly behind the scenes under the radar, then in fact... You know, how far can you prevent war? (laughs) I mean, it's a huge one. But my own view is that much, much more resources should go into that. First of all, prevention is much cheaper. but It's always hard to actually measure financially what you've prevented. But also people's states of mind are different. So if we take Taiwan, there's a lot of talk in the West about the inevitability of war, the way we're going. But in the end, we have to be very, very careful not to escalate all the rhetoric around it. And the question we should be saying is prevention, 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 prevention. What can we do to think about how to avoid the buildup of tensions on this issue? It's massive and the consequences are enormous. So what can we do? We can set up proper processes of dialogue. You need to listen very carefully to the Taiwanese, what they want as opposed to what we think they want, what would reduce the conflict, what kind of dialogues are happening with China, what kind of military conversations are happening. There are numerous levels in which we could think preventatively, but you hardly ever, ever hear the word prevention. Well, look, Gabrielle Rifkind, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really pleased to talk to you both. I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Baroness Cathy Ashton, who is former High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy and author of the book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. Cathy, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Lovely to see Ed and Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, well, it's great to have you. Your book is a really interesting and entertaining read. And I just wondered if you might start by talking about the process of you getting the job, because I think people from outside politics might be kind of quite surprised at the slightly haphazard nature of this process. Well, Ed, you know well that um, it, it often looks quite bizarre on the inside as well as the outside. And in this particular circumstance, I was in Brussels as the trade commissioner, having replaced Peter Mandelson, who'd come home. That job you found out about while being in the gym uh, and having it announced on the media before you had any idea it was going to happen. I watched it go around the ticker tape at the bottom of Sky News and BBC News for some hours before anyone actually contacted me. But again, you know, that's the nature of public service, isn't it? You you agree to serve and off you go. Um, But it was strange because I was being asked to not only change jobs, but change countries. Uh, So Friday morning, as you say, I'm trying to get some exercise in. And by Friday evening, I'm in Brussels, where I'm about to spend the next six years. At the end of the year, I'm due to come home. I've given up my apartment. And you start to see the way that you put together these jobs in the context of 28 countries, different institutions. It's a bit of a puzzle. And it's to do with a combination of geography. So you want east-west, you want south represented, you want northern countries. It's a bit about politics. And occasionally, gender comes into play. So, you know, it is sometimes in politics, like everywhere else, just about being in the proverbial right place at the right time. Diplomacy, which I think for many people, myself included, we imagine a suave charmer doing whining and dining at the embassy and being careful not to uh, put a foot wrong in, in delicate conversations. How accurate is that? What, what does the job look like day to day? Jeff, it's all of those uh, and more. I mean, for a lot of diplomats, depending on where they are, they've got very particular jobs to do. And the reason I wrote the book was partly to explain to people what it is like to be a diplomat, what it can entail, and in a way to, as a bit of a homage to diplomacy and to diplomats, because they're amazing, and we really don't celebrate them enough. Are you diplomatic in real life, in your personal relationships? Do, do your uh, friends and family recognise that version of you? Um, on occasion, don't they probably all laugh and say, <laughs> really? Like everyone else, you know? Um, 
but I, when I thought back, when people said, well, how did you, how did you manage it? You know, I hadn't been trained. I'd never been really near the foreign office until I got to Brussels. I discovered I'd really been doing it all my life. So you're constantly using those skills to, you know, to get people together, to find ways through, to look for compromises in the best sense of that word. And so I suppose it's a bit like that. I've also had the privilege of bringing up five children. So there's a lot of diplomacy in that too. Talk to us a bit more before we dive into the specifics, Cathy, about the qualities that you learnt and, and, and concluded were important for the role. I'm presumably being an honest broker, being trustworthy and straight with people, building personal relationships. So the first quality is the ability to listen because it's by listening that you learn the other side, if you like. If you're doing a negotiation, you need to know where they come from, what they think, who they are. And you can often, as you get to work with people and you get deeper into the issues, it's often the nuance in their voice. It's a slightly different way of approaching something that gives you the way in. Give us a sort of an example then of what that means in practice. Let's take the Iran negotiations, perhaps one of the most complex issues you dealt with, the Iran nuclear deal, how would that have expressed itself, for example, in your relationship with the Iranians? The first thing I did when I met the Iranian team, you know how uh, involved we were in this country in trying to promote human rights and so on in Iran. Incredibly important then, incredibly important now. So I started something that I continued throughout the four and a half years, which was to have dinner with the Iranian team the night before the talks. And there were three reasons for that. One is back to my listening point. You got a sense of who they were. Two, you could talk about the process you were going to do the next few days so that you could iron out the ambiguities or problems with that. Not the details. You weren't negotiating. And three, it meant when you sat across the table the next day, you didn't begin cold. You began with me saying... Thank you very much for dinner. We'd already done the ice breaking. We'd already had the conversations. I already knew what mood they were in. I already knew something of what was going on back home. And so for me, again, a key element of any negotiation is the opportunity to just not be going into these difficult conversations without having had a chance to work out where everything is and to have had a chance to break the ice. Another thing you write in the, about in the book is the dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia following Kosovo's declaration of independence. What goes into an agreement like this at the point at which you become involved in it and how you approach it? The anger and hatred and bitterness is never to be underestimated in a region that has seen terrible war uh, and attacks on populations, especially in Kosovo. So when I brought the two prime ministers together, they had never met. They were the same age. They lived, of course, not far from each other. And for them to be in the same room was a huge act of courage because they both knew that back home, they would be seen to be sitting with the deepest, darkest enemy. What did that feel like the first moment they were in a room together? If they were here, they'd say we were sweating. And they were. It was very obvious. I thought at least one of them would, would disappear. When they arrived, and I saw them both separately first, the thing that I had to do was impress upon them what was going to happen. And so it was one hour with one photograph, which was in a camera that had a memory card in those times. And the memory card was taken out after the photograph and handed to me. And I kept it. And I said, this photograph goes nowhere unless you two want me to put it out. It was explaining in great detail that they didn't have to shake hands, though they did, um, that it would be exactly an hour. And after that, we would see where we were to try and kind of ease the tension. You know, and they came in with a translator each. I was there as one official. So the six of us sat in a room. Each spoke for about 15, 20 minutes. I'd given an introduction. And then before it could, it could kind of unravel, I closed the meeting and decided that, again, having listened to them, there was enough there that I invited them to come back a month later for dinner. And they accepted. 
And then the next morning, I got a message from Dolph saying I could put the photograph out. And it literally went around the world. What kind of emotional effect does a, does a day like that or a, a process like that have on you? What's, what's it like when you sort of flop on your sofa at the end of the day? Well, these were long days. The Serbia-Kosovo talks would be 14, 15 hour long days and always would be in the middle of me doing something else. So I would be flying in from the Iran talks or going out to a meeting in Brazil that I was chairing or whatever. So it was always, you know, in the midst of everything else, trying to carve out time. And we would spend, as I say, very, very long days just trying to work through very small details that could make a difference. And... I would go for a range of emotions, you know, sometimes frustration and anger that they just couldn't move. Most of the time, a recognition that these were people who were doing something so extraordinary that were prepared to risk a great deal. In that job, you you clearly see every side of human nature. You, you, you see this first for compromise and forgiveness. I'm sure you also see sort of temper tantrums. What makes you optimistic when you think of the challenges that we're going to face uh, in this century? What makes you optimistic about the future of diplomacy and the, the people who are working in it? The optimism comes from the fact that there are some amazing people out there. And even though you will never meet them, I will never meet them. They are every day doing things behind the door, behind the curtains. Uh, they are working their own particular brand of magic. And in any conflict or any problem, there is always somebody talking to somebody. Last question, Cathy, if I may ask, has this experience changed the way you negotiate within your family? It's a very good question, Ed. They're, they're all kind of grown up now, so there's less negotiation to do. Do you think to yourself, oh, it's like I, I had this experience with the president of Iran. I can deal with this with one of my children. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, when I say to young diplomats, you know, where do you get your experience from? And I said, I said, my family, it's, it's only half a joke because actually the point about us all is we all negotiate all day long. That's what we do. You negotiate with your family. You negotiate with people. You know, wh whatever you're doing, you're constantly dealing with relationships with the people you work with and the people that you're trying to do business with. So it's, it's the same stuff. It's just put in a very different context. And what you don't have in day-to-day -day life is really the fear of failure because the consequences of failing in something like the Iran negotiations at that time were, were with us all the time. They, they were like a big burden you carried. But if we failed... And, and that's when you get into the problem of thinking, am I good enough to do this? That people remain human and real, which is uh, what makes it the best thing to do. Well, look, Cathy Ashton, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. The book is And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. So I've had an idea after this. I think if there is a Labour government, they need look no further than you as their chief diplomat. You're empathetic. You don't empathetic. Want to, you you don't want to offend people. You're a good listener. I often do. You're a good listener. I was thinking as we were having one of the conversations, one of the things that's you I think you asked, Kathy, what's the thing that might be a problem if you want to be a diplomat? And, and I was thinking, mm, I don't you don't like people. <laughs> they don't like me. It's a defence mechanism. I think not wanting to interact with people could be slight, uh, just a, a stumbling block, yeah. Teeny weeny, yeah. itsy bitsy drawback, you know what I mean? I, th I, th I think I would live in fear of causing a diplomatic incident as well. I mean, you don't tend to cause diplomatic incidents, do you? Would you be surprised if you heard that I've been in the at the centre of a diplomatic incident? Some kind of comedy of errors? Maybe. So what you're saying is you don't wish that your careers advisor at school had raised this with you as a sort of possibility? No. I am in awe of it, though, as the more yeah. I hear about the job. Just what it asks to get people to leave so much at the door. It's, it's an incredible job. The thing I felt talking to all our guests was, I think patience is the thing I think. I mean, perseverance. Because if you're trying to get parties to agree to something, you can't really tell them that where to get off, can you? No. I suppose what I think from my limited experience of this, partly of the Copenhagen 
talks is what Cathy said about, you know, a lot obviously geopolitics and all that is the big driving factor for so much of this. But also personal relationships can help smooth the way, I think. Mm. In other words, you could fail to get an outcome because of bad personal relationships. You won't get the good outcome just because of personal relationships, but you could fail to get one because of, you know, breakdown of understanding and so on. So you make a good diplomat? I always used to say when I was doing the climate stuff in government that it was very important to understand different sides. I use this phrase, compelling constraints, that every country had its own domestic constraints. And unless you could understand its own domestic constraints, you just sort of said, oh, it's terrible what they're doing, but didn't really understand what was their issue, then you were unlikely to succeed. So maybe. Yeah, maybe that's in your future. Our man in Gibraltar. Do you fancy it? I think I'll stick to my current role. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's show about diplomacy, or you've got ideas for other episodes, we always love to hear from people. We particularly like nice compliments, um, a bit of positive reinforcement. You can find us on cheerfulpodcast.com. We read every email and we read out the nice ones. Uh, this one comes from Tom Layton. Subject, I'm going into railing for my 50th. Oh, wow. Hello, lovely, lovely Jeff and Ed. <clears throat> I think the lovely, lovely is, is both of us. I mean, it's true that there's... There's no comma. Well, there shouldn't there be an Oxford comma after the second lovely if it's Jeff and Ed? I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, we'll assume it applies to both of us. I've been listening to your show since the very beginning and still love it. I love that you're always at your most excited on train and bus related shows. <laughs> Full steam ahead was no exception. <gasps> my 50th birthday this June, my wife and I are going into railing. Wow. We'd planned this before your episode, but it's got me even more excited. I never went when I was a teenager. I didn't really get on with the cool kids at school. You're not alone there, Tom. Uh, so I wasn't invited to go with them. I hadn't realised that interrailing is a little older than me, but we're so excited about our trip. The plan is to get as far as a Greek island or two, as ferries are also included, but let's see how it goes. Fantastic. The only concession we're doing to interrailing is that as I'm going to be 50, we've taken the advice of your other amazing guest marks with and brought first-class tickets. They're only £100 more, and if you do have to reserve a seat or berth, it costs no more than if you had a second-class pass. Well worth a little extra. Thanks, as always, for cheering me up, Tom. Amazing. You see, I, I'm turning 50 next month and I'm still scratching my head thinking what I should do. I don't know if I've, I've quite got the bandwidth to go into railing at the moment, much as I would love to. Hang on, are you sure you're not 49? Yes, 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 very much so. No, next, next, no, aren't you 49 next month? No, no, I, I'm very sure that I turn 50 next month. Jeez, Jeff. Your, your arithmetic is a lot better than mine, but this I'm pretty certain of. That's crept up on me. I mean, surely what you're going to do is have a big party. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah reassured me the other day that she will not be surprising me by having me walk in somewhere and then suddenly be confronted with everybody I've ever met. Okay, this comes from Heidi Russenberger, who says, Dear Ed, Jeff, and whoever deals with the RTBC emails, that'll be Rachel. I wanted to say how much I enjoyed the recent episode on international train travel. I love travelling by train and will always choose it over air travel. Aside from the environmental cost of flying, travelling by train gives you the chance to see a whole lot more of different countries, not just the inside of an airport. I blame my parents for introducing me to international train travel. They went pretty much everywhere by train, including the Trans-Siberian Express across the then USSR before they had children. So our family holidays to Europe were usually by train, mainly Switzerland with the double-decker trains wow. and the onboard playgrounds, which we were so curious about. Ed. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I've since gone as far as Finland for a university conference and got to spend a day in Hamburg and Stockholm en route, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd gone by plane. However, I was only able to make that trip because I had some savings I was able and willing to spend uh, and was able to take the extra time to make the trip. Businesses, universities and other organisations typically won't cover staff who wish to travel by means of the than flying either financially through expenses claims or time-wise by allowing extra time to travel. The Climate Perks Scheme encourages employers to give employees an extra day of holiday uh, if they choose slower but lower carbon travel methods, but more work needs to be done to increase the use of trains over planes for non-leisure trips. That's interesting, isn't it? I'd not thought about that aspect of it. And this one comes from Vicky, and she says, Greetings to Ed and Jeff from Hong Kong. Just sending a quick email to say, I really enjoyed your last two podcast episodes on Bernie Sanders and train travel. 
The latter of the two topics was particularly interesting as my husband and I were returning to Europe to be close to family, and something we were both very keen to do is travel more by train. The pandemic meant that we were unable to see our families for three years, and the first time we got on a plane, we both forgot how awful the experience was. But anyway, to the real reason I've emailed, which is to add this contribution to Ed's culinary adventures with tofu and Chinese dishes are, in my opinion, great with tofu. And she says, I'm biased because I'm Hong Kong Chinese. A favourite in my home is Mapo tofu. Oh, yeah. Links yeah. if you're up for a challenge. As I'm also trying to reduce meat consumption, I sometimes make the dish vegetarian by foregoing the chicken stock and minced meat and using a plant-based meat or none at all. It might look intimidating, she says, but don't panic. Also, don't necessarily need dried chilies. Fresh chilies will do, and you can try and adjust the spice level. The key ingredient to the sauce is the bean paste, garlic, chilies, and of course, the tofu. I really love this dish, actually. You'd recommend me in the direction of Mapo Tofu. Yes. Maybe, maybe try it out on someone else first. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. We are ho, ho. Now, I am not, as you know, a musical fan, but I went to see the musical Sylvia about Sylvia Pankhurst with my son uh, last weekend, and it was excellent. Aha, tell us more. Well, it's a sort of musical hip-hop thingy. This is is a man who's well-versed in the genre of both hip-hop and musicals, you can hear from that description there. Yeah, about Sylvia Pankhurst and the Suffragettes. And it's honestly, it's brilliant. Beverly Knight plays Emmeline Pankhurst. She's tremendous. um, What a voice she has. Yeah, honestly, it was great. Basically... People rose as one with a standing ovation at the end. Wow. Keir Hardy is in it. I mean, an actor playing Keir Hardy. Not an apparition. Before people get too excited. It's got lots of educational bits about the foundation of the Labour Party. Honestly, it really, I was really enthusiastic. Well, this could be a gateway into either musicals or hip-hop. Do you think I might have a career in hip-hop? You, you, could, you could try it. I think if you did make a, a hip-hop video about wind turbines, I think it would definitely go viral. Do you think? Yes. It might set the movement back. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, we should thank our guests. Yes. I'd like to thank our guests, Christiana Figueres, Gabrielle Rifkind and Cathy Ashton. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband... He's been Jeff Floyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.